good to see you here. We, uh, we know some of you are not with us uh, at present, but are, are watching online, and so we just want to say that um, we love you and look forward to the time when you're able to get back and be with us in person. And we have a special family with us today that I just want to welcome. I don't want to embarrass them, but I want to just um, welcome the Mankoski family uh, into our midst. Uh, They're staying with the Brinks. Um, uh, uh, Valeri and Masha and their son Lev, we are so thankful that God has protected you and, and brought you here on your journey from the Ukraine, and we pray that God will provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ as you start a new life here. Thank you for worshiping with us today, and, and uh, I hope that you will find a place where people, you'll see that people genuinely love the Lord, but will also love you. So uh, we hope you'll continue uh, to come back, and, and I hope that all of you will find a way to, to introduce yourselves and, and just give them a warm welcome after the service. Well, today, in our walk through the book of Hebrews, we are spending time looking at one verse about marriage. And why why stop and slow down and spend time on this verse? Well, marriage is the bedrock of society that God in his grace has appointed and given to humanity. And the Bible honors marriage, and, and thankfully, so do our country's tax laws, if you stop and think about it. But we, we've seen a major shift in our, in our country, in our society's perspective on marriage in a very short amount of time, in just one generation. According to the Pew Research Center polling in 2004, Americans opposed same-sex marriage by a margin of 60% to 31%. Okay? 60% to 31% thought that same-sex marriage was wrong. And in only 15 years considered this change. Based on polling in 2019, a majority of Americans, 61%, supported same-sex marriage, while 31% opposed it. So pretty much a, a flip in the numbers, a, a huge margin in, in 15 years. Well, according to a November 2019 Pew Research study, most Americans, that would be 69% of Americans, say that cohabitation, that would be two people who are not married, living together is acceptable even if a couple doesn't plan to get married. Now, another 16% say it's acceptable, but only if the couple plans to marry. So if you're doing a little number crunching in your minds, that, that means that that there's only 14% of Americans today who say that it's never acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together. That's only 14%. Now, I, I want to remind you that between 30 and 35% of Americans claim to be evangelical Christians, okay, when you think about those statistics. Well, the, the same study in 2019 revealed, and I'm quoting here, that married adults have a higher level of relationship satisfaction and trust than those who are living with a partner. Married adults are more likely than those who are living with a partner to say that things are going very well in their relationship. That's 58% versus 41%. Married adults are also more likely than those who are cohabiting to say that they have a great deal of trust in their spouse or partner to be faithful to them, act in their best interests, always tell them the truth, and handle money responsibly. End quote. 
So, so the values of our society are, are shifting, like sand dunes and the wind. So it's important for us to understand, what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, in this one verse, it says a lot. Let's, let's read it again. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So we've got three points to this sermon, uh, basically just following three main points of, of, this, of this verse. The first one is that we should honor marriage. It says, again, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, now before we get into this, I, I want to give you one disclaimer, and, and that is this, that we have some folks among us who aren't married. Maybe you're young and you're, you're planning to get married. Maybe you're a little older. Maybe you've been married. Maybe, maybe you're not planning to get married. And I just want to say, you can be single and still honor the institution of marriage. You don't have to be married to honor the institution of marriage, right? Jesus is the prime example. He never got married. He never planned to get married. But he honored the institution of marriage. And so we want to be careful that as a, as a church family that we never make anyone who's single feel they're somehow second class in the kingdom of God. But we should all honor marriage. And I hope when you think about marriage, you, you have happy thoughts. Um, and, and I want to talk for a moment about why we should even get married. So Ken Bandy, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. Uh, by the way, now's a good time to put your thinking cap on because I could call in anybody here. Ken doesn't know I'm going to ask him this, but why did you marry your wife? No pressure. High stakes question, high stakes answer. That's a good kind of general answer. God told me to. All right. Bart, why did you marry Wendy? Oh, that's a good answer. That was a good answer too, brother. The theologically correct. But Bart felt that he would be better with Wendy than without her. That, that was good. That was good. Way to think, think in the moment, my, my man. All right. James, I'm just picking on these folks in the front. You know, it's a great thing. We always want you to sit in the front. Maybe I should uh, start picking on people in the back. James Brincy, why did you marry Amanda? Okay, wow. He wanted to demonstrate Christ in the church to the world. That was good. Now, now here's maybe even, even a, a, a tougher question. Amanda, why did you marry James? <laughs> I mean, you know... <laughs> no offense, brother. Well, it's, it's equal opportunity. I don't believe that church should be a sexist environment. Awesome. Okay, really, because it was the godly biblical thing to do, and you looked to you looked to James and felt that that's what God wanted you to do. It sounds like. Okay, awesome. Great. Well, let's look over here. Actually, we'll just come back to my notes. Sigh of relief. You know, last week I was talking about um, Christians being persecuted, and I think I saw three or four people sleeping. And nobody's sleeping right now. 
So I'm not quite sure, you know, persecution, marriage, but somehow we're all interested. And hopefully, hopefully this will be a, marriage, or a, uh, a sermon that, that keeps you awake. But, you know, Beth and I devote time to premarital counseling because we, we really believe in, we honor marriage. And on, on Friday afternoons, we, we meet with various couples, sometimes on Zoom, sometimes in person. Right now we have three couples that we're working with. Um, uh, trying to prepare them for marriage. And so just this last week, last Friday afternoon, we sat down with a couple for the first, the, their first time with us. And, and I asked them that question, why do you guys want to get married? And there's a lot of good reasons to want to get married. But I want to give you three, and, and these, this is not an exhaustive list of reasons to get married, because I, I think there are more than this. But I want to give you three principles that, that, are, that, are, that I, I see in Scripture for really good reasons to get married. And the first one is simple but profound, and, and you guys all kind of said this, and that is to glorify God, right? We should marry, a good reason to get married is to glorify God. First Corinthians 6.20 says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. A few chapters later, we read in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So the highest motivation for marriage must be to glorify God. A belief that this is what's right, um, this is obedience, that this person will help me serve you, God, and, and bring you glory more than if I did it alone, solo. But a second reason for marriage, and, and, and I think this one is very important, and sometimes, you know, we, 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 we theologically minded people like to go theological all of a sudden, we jump to like Ephesians 5, and that's good. But when you start at the beginning of the book, what you see is companionship, right? Companionship. So turn with me, if you will, or we've got the, we've got the, the, the verses, I believe, on the screen here, um, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And, and this is the story of, of the very first marriage and God's purposes for creating a woman. So in verse 18 we read, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I just want to stop for a moment. Um, I believe that the early humans actually had far greater intellectual ability than we have today. All right, you think about the percentage of our brain that we use today. Doctors say it's what, 6%, 7%, Joshua? Something like that, right? Pre-curse, pre-fall, Right? And sometimes, you know, we look back and, 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 and we have questions about some of the ancient things that were built or how could they have done this or that. Well, Adam was created with full capacity without the, the effects, the marring effects of, of sin, not just only on his will, but even on his, on his mind and on his body, right? And, and so great intelligence. And I think we see evidence of this even in Genesis chapter 2 as God brings the animal kingdom to Adam and Adam was really God's viceroy, God's ruler on earth, representing God himself. 
okay? Made in his image. Adam is given the charge to name the animals. And implicit when you understand the Hebrew concept of naming, there was ownership when you give a name. There was a sense of, of knowledge, of deep knowledge, deep, I would say, scientific knowledge. In which, so it wasn't just a sentimental experience, it was a scientific experience when he named the animals. And, and, you know, I think the animal kingdom probably had far greater capacity. Certainly, the animal kingdom was not at war with itself. You didn't have carnivory, right? You didn't have um, uh, the fear. You had an animal kingdom in harmony. That's really hard for us to understand. Likely with far greater intellectual and communicative capacity than what the animal kingdom has today. And yet, as, 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 as much as like dogs are man's best friend, right, there wasn't found an animal that could fill Adam's need for companionship. And so we read on. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now let me, let me stop for a moment. Some, some people in our modern age have ridiculed this verse as if somehow this is sexist or makes women in fear to man because she came out of man. But I, I would argue that actually what we see here is that the woman was the crown of God's creation. Right? God's very last act in creation. He made the animals. He created the animals and Adam from the dust. But then he took a part of Adam and he created, he fashioned it exquisitely into a woman to be the perfect companion for Adam. And here we see Adam rejoicing in God's creation. And so we read all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh physically and emotionally and, and spiritually. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they were living in a, in a condition of innocence and in a place of total protection without shame, without fear, with great joy in relationship. And so talk about the gift of a lifetime. You know, we live in a fallen world today, right? All kinds of effects of the fall, a broken world where people, countries are at war with each other. And, and sadly, even in relationships, we see conflict. And yet, even in this broken world, the, the gift of marriage is, is one of a companion, something that we long for, a best friend, a, a wingman, and, and a lover. And I have to say that the, the longer the years go by, Beth and I will be celebrating our 22nd anniversary here in, in a few days, the more I appreciate my, my best friend and my wingman. And I'll say I'm her wingman too, all right? Um, let, me, let me tell you, there are times in which I have thought I couldn't keep going. Or where, there, where, where I, I, I ceased really believing that I could do it. And, and it was Beth that the Lord used to, to lift me up. And that's what we're called to do, to lift one another up, to have each other's backs, to, to speak truth. And, and there are times when, when one of us are going to be down. 
And so what a, what a blessing it is to have a, a best friend and a wingman and a lover for a lifetime. And so companionship is the reason that we see at the very beginning for marriage. But as James mentioned, we also see in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 that demonstrating the gospel to the world is a great reason to get married, right? That's a great reason. So honoring God, right? Companionship, but also gospel ministry. And I would say this to, to a couple that's looking to get engaged. You know, when you're looking to, 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 to marry someone, looking for your spouse, you need to ask the question, does, does this person, will this person help me honor God? Will, will this person be a faithful companion? They don't need to be a carbon copy of you. In fact, it's probably better that they're not, Right? Um, my sister, whom I love dearly, she's in another state. She has a very similar personality to me. Uh, it would have been very bad news for me to marry someone just like my sister. Okay, we would have clashed. The Lord gave me Beth, a perfect um, companion and, and a perfect person to balance me out who had strengths that I don't have, right? So you don't have to have the same Myers-Briggs personality inventory, but you, you do need to have the same heart commitments, the same principles that you believe in. And, and, and what that means is that you need to marry someone who's truly a Christian, someone who truly loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, if you are a Christian. Now, I'll be honest with you. I believe that marriage is an institution for all of humanity. It's God's common grace. So I've had to think about this, but I would, if, some, if two non-Christians asked me to marry them, um, I would consider that as a means of sharing the gospel with them and, and I would insist on premarital counseling. But I would have to warn them, listen, I'm going to share the gospel with you. And, and I would advise against just one of you accepting this because then I would not be able to marry you. So come, come to Christ together, right? But, but if not, I, I hope you'll at least seek to, to, to follow some of these biblical principles. Because marriage is a gift God has given to all of humanity. So Muslim marriages and Hindu marriages and Buddhist marriages... Uh, atheistic marriages. These are indeed marriages in the eyes of God if they have truly made a covenant to one another. But I believe that, that for a marriage to truly be happy and, and joyful, um, uh, Christian principles must be followed. But the bottom line is that for the Christian, the highest reason for marriage would be to demonstrate the gospel. And so we read in Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now I'd like to, to, to kind of elaborate on this text. I'd like to, to read for you part 18 from the Baptist Faith and Message, which is an article regarding the family. And, and I just want to check here with our, our guys in the back. Here we go. All right. I want to make sure that we're all synced up. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution 
of human society. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. There's a lot packed in that verse that our society has, has, has run away from, right? One man for one woman, as Ken Ham likes to say, it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? For lifetime, in covenant commitment. And it is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards and the means for procreation of the human race. The husband and the wife are equal before God since both are created in God's image. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. And a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willfully submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Now let me just add something here uh, that often I think gets missed as, as, as the modern uh, man wants to critique uh, and, and criticize some of these principles, right? Scripture teaches that all Christians are to love one another and all Christians are to submit their interests for the well-being of one another. And so this certainly doesn't mean that, that women don't have to, wives don't have to love their husbands or that husbands don't have to respect or submit their, their will for the well-being of their wives because we're all called to that. But the Lord designed each of us uniquely. And, and as we see the, the, the Trinity, the, 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 the highest relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being equal in essence, that's what we call the, the ontological Trinity, equal in essence, we see that in function, the Son and the Spirit submit to the loving leadership of the Father. And so God has given human relationships an order in which people who are equal in essence submit to one another. And, and God knew as he designed each of us that, that a woman's greatest need, she needs respect for sure, but is to be cherished and loved. And often that is where we husbands fall short. And a man's need, though he certainly likes being loved, I think all of us guys want to be loved, right? But really, we need someone who will believe in us, right? Who will respect us. And sometimes it's, it's easy to stop respecting this guy that you're, that you're living with, right? Easy to go and, and maybe start speaking about him negatively to, to friends. And, and so his greatest need is for someone who will believe in him and who will lift him up. And, and so we see this admonition, and in Ephesians chapter 5, to submit and to love. In other words, to honor marriage. Well, Jesus, though he never married, honored marriage by performing his first miracle at a wedding, at a wedding party, turning water into wine to, to, to help not only honor the family, but to help them rejoice and celebrate. And so it is right that at weddings we celebrate and, and honor the institution of marriage. 
But later Jesus honored marriage with these words. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Again, Jesus' words, male and female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in review, who should get married? A man and a woman. And for how long? Until death do you part. And here I think it, it's good for us to remember that it is not only our society right now that, that is assaulting the integrity and the honor of marriage, but frankly, oftentimes it's our own sinful hearts, is it not? And so we need to remember that according to Scripture, marriage is based on a commitment before a holy God, not based on feelings. Feelings change. But a covenant, a commitment, a vow that you made before a holy God never changes. Your spouse, because they're a, a sinner like you are, is going to let you down. But there is never reason to forego that commitment. Commitment, not feelings. And you know, love is a choice. There are feelings involved in love. But ultimately, love is a commitment that we make. And when you say, I do... And when you said, I do, whether that was last year or 40 years ago, that was a covenant you made before a holy God until death do you part. So we Christians should honor marriage with our attitude and, and with our actions. And, and honoring marriage means that we should also honor the marriage bed. Verse 4, it says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So the marriage bed is pure and is beautiful and we as Christians need to protect it and guard it with our lives. Pastor Kent Hughes elaborates here that bed is used here as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. The bed, the sexual relationship, is an altar, so to speak, where a pure offering of a couple's lives is made to each other and to God. Now, it might seem a little bit strange or a little bit awkward for us to be talking about sexuality in church. We don't normally talk about it, um, and there are several reasons. We, we have different generations and, and young people here. But you know, the Bible actually talks about this matter because it's important. And this passage talks about this matter. So I think it would be wrong to just kind of fast forward and ignore it because this is something that is applicable to our lives. And so it's important for us to understand that God himself is the designer of sex. Therefore, sexual intimacy in marriage is good. Sometimes I think because we don't talk about it in church, and this is a topic that everybody thinks about, and everyone frankly talks about, if it's talked about in other places, it may in your mind be something that's less than holy. But it's not less than holy. It is good and holy. And even though the devil... And, and the world, our society, and even our own flesh will, 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 will try to make it dirty and, and twist it in its pure form as God intended. It is beautiful and holy. And so we should honor the marriage bed. We already read 
God's command to a sinless Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But the Bible teaches that, that God didn't just design sex only for procreation. It teaches that God exquisitely designed it for the enjoyment and fulfillment of his creatures. Could have been done a whole lot of other ways. But God designed it for the enjoyment and the fulfillment of his creatures, but within the covenant and within the safety of, of marriage. So several scriptures, this is not comprehensive, but Song of Solomon. How, how, many, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Song of Solomon? Has anybody, has anyone ever like gone through the whole book of Song of Solomon without totally allegorizing it, like way beyond what it was intended to be? That's kind of one of our, our ways of trying to deal with it. Song of Solomon chapter 6 verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This is from the woman. He grazes among the lilies. Chapter 7 verse 10. I'm my beloved and, my de- and, and his desire. I'm my beloved's and his desire is for me. Again, I don't see anybody sleeping right now. Um, I get it right? Um, Song of Solomon, what's it going to say next? Listen, I tried to curate a couple passages that weren't too, um, um, what's the right word here? Um, Weren't too sensual, okay? Because some of them really are, all right? Especially if you go back to the original language, uh, some of it really is. But the idea is it's celebrating um, even the passion, even the steam of human sexuality within the marriage covenant. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, Let your, and this is to a young person, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A a loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In in the New Testament, we read, um, uh, and and frankly, um, you know, if if I'm getting this from Paul, who um, when he wrote it was a single dude, it'd be easy to be like, hey, what are you doing lecturing me, a, a married guy, right, about this? However, Paul, being a Pharisee, we believe had been married, okay, had some experience in the matter. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. So he's encouraging here um, an honoring of one another and an honoring of God through the sexual relationship. Now notice here uh, the equality of the male and the female here, the husband and the wife. But also notice that sexual intimacy is good and it's supposed to be a regular part of married life. So the Bible celebrates sexuality in the covenant and in the safety of marriage. And and what that means, young people, in the covenant and the safety of marriage, it means that you aren't going to be intimate with somebody and then abandoned if you're doing it God's way here. Okay, that's what safety means. It means that you're not going to be put on somebody's conquer list and then mentally or even verbally compared to others if you're doing it God's way here, if it's in 
the sanctimony, the safety and the covenant of marriage. And so on my honeymoon, I felt that it was Jesus Christ himself who opened our bedroom door. And, and, and that's, what you, that's what you want to work towards, right? You want to protect that which is beautiful. Young people, you know the definition of wisdom? It, it's thinking long-term instead of short-term gratification. And, and the fool focuses on short-term gratification and it leads to ruin. An, an example of this uh, and it's, it, this, is a ter- this is terminology that I detest, but in our culture today, a lot of young people use the term hooking up to describe sex as if it means nothing. We just hooked up last night. It was no big deal. You know what? It was a big deal. That, that's a lie from the devil. That whole terminology is, is wicked because God designed sex to be very intimate, and it is. It's emotionally and, and physically and even spiritually intimate. So, so even though you might call it hooking up, that's, that's just a, a fake term, right? God designed it to be safe in a loving and committed marriage relationship. So young people, keep yourselves pure now out of a love for God and a love for your future spouse. Pastor Kent Hughes wrote, we Christians are called to be outrageously pure to be a source of wonder and even derision to this glandular world. So let's honor marriage. And and let's honor the marriage bed, whether you're single or whether you're married. Because our, our passage here ends with a warning. And that is a warning of dishonor, actually judgment, for the sexually immoral. The end of verse four says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, there's two words used here. Um, The word adulterous signifies married people who are unfaithful to their spouse. But the word sexually immoral is actually in in Greek, pornos. And and so this is a a meaning that's expanded beyond just married folks, right? The, The ESV study Bible, if you have that, defines this as anyone who engages in sexual conduct outside of marriage. That is the definition here of sexual immorality. And so here we see that there is judgment in this life for sexual immorality. And you think about that, we see it all around us. We see disease. We see unwanted, unintended pregnancies. And, and, and that can lead to, to really sad situations where you have kids that maybe have parents who, who aren't really around for them or, or, or aren't really committed to them. Or even worse, the sin of abortion. But it also causes emotional harm, like destroyed relationships and insecurity and just the distortion of what is good. God makes something beautiful and the world twists it, the devil twists it to become something that is harmful to people. But you know, there's something far more dangerous than physical judgment in this life, and that is eternal judgment. So consider these words in Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 5 through 6 that says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, So brothers and sisters, we need to purpose 
I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're young, whether you're getting to be a little bit older like me. All of us have got to purpose to avoid sexual immorality. Because against us is the world, the devil, and frankly, our own flesh. But for us is the word of truth and and the Holy Spirit in us to guide us and frankly, each other to encourage each other in, in, in the way of righteousness, to hold each other accountable. And so I'd like to encourage you right now to turn to the book of Proverbs. It's about halfway through your Bible. The book of Proverbs chapter seven warns us to beware, to, to avoid sexual immorality. And I'm gonna put on these glasses because I'm gonna try to read this whole chapter here. Proverbs chapter seven. And and this is written as if to a young man from his parents, but this applies to a young woman as, as much as it does to a young man. And it says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Let me stop there for a moment. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Let no one say that God's word is is somehow um, um, macho or misogynist, right? Um, The whole idea of of wisdom in the Proverbs is personified as a woman, lady wisdom, okay? Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, we can... Certainly, um, heed this warning, young men, um, to avoid and watch out for the adulteress. But these days, it might be more watching out for what's on here at night, right? On, on this internet that's available just a few clicks away, a few seconds away, to beware. Or maybe for you young ladies, beware of that boy who tells you that he loves you. But he's pushing you physically for more, right? So when you hear the words adulterous, uh, expand that a little bit, unpack that a little bit in terms of the warnings that you need to watch out for in your own life. For at the window of my house, verse six, I have looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. You know, about 10 years ago, um, when we were living in London, I had a trip I had to take to Amsterdam. Now, if you know anything about Amsterdam, it's a beautiful city, um, full of canals, a lot of beautiful architecture, but it has a dark side, okay? It's, It's known for sex tourism, okay? And you know what? I knew that as a man... Having feet of clay, I was taking this trip by myself. I preferred to travel with others if I could. Wasn't always able to do that. On this, usually when I traveled, and I traveled a lot at that point in my life and ministry, usually I would, as soon as I arrived somewhere, I'd be staying with people, other Christians, be busy with meetings. This was more of an exploratory trip, okay? I was, I was going to meet a number of different Afghan refugees and try to meet up with different people who are ministering to Afghan refugees and, and figure out better strategies. And I realized, you know what? I, this, the, the, the point of this trip is righteous, but I have feet of clay. I'm going to be alone in Amsterdam. So I got on Google Maps, showed my wife, looked at, all right, where's the train station? Where, where, where's the place where I need to have meetings? 
where's the red light district? And I don't want to go within two blocks. I've got, I planned it out where I was staying so I would not go anywhere near any kind of temptation uh, for, 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 with my eyes, all right? And then I called up my, one of my pastors and I said, listen, I got this trip going to Amsterdam. Uh, I need you to hold me accountable. And what that means is not just when I get back, ask me how it went. I need, you to, I need to check in with you every night, okay? So preemptive planning, right? Trying to set that fence, not right on the edge of the cliff, but a few steps back from the edge of the cliff. By God's grace, the church and the gospel has a hospital on the bottom of that cliff, but it's a whole lot better to not fall off. A whole lot better not to, not to fall off that cliff. Verse 10 says, but unfortunately this young man didn't set any kind of fence. And in verse 10, and this again, this might be you at night with your phone. Maybe you don't need a phone in your room ever, right? Maybe you better, you know, I, I would just say in this day and age, I hope all of you have some kind of filter at home or some kind of accountability setting or something. Um, verse 10, and behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, now at every corner she lies in wait. At every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. A rationalization of sin, you see. And, and so now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, covered linens from the Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. So sin always looks good. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves in love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. It's like a tragedy here we're reading. It's like a tragedy, right? All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not strain to her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are like a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. A little bit dramatic? Is that overstated? No, it is not. So can a Christian fall into sexual immorality? Well, sadly, yes. We Christians have feet of clay. We battle the flesh as well as the devil as well as the influences of the world. In fact, there isn't anybody here in this room who is bulletproof. Okay, any one of us, if we quench the spirit, could fall into this sin probably quicker than we think we could. But will a true Christian live an unrepentant, persistent sexual immorality? The answer is no. According to scripture, that would actually be evidence that one is not truly a Christian. Persistent unrepentant sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verses 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. As such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you're here right now and and you're, you're feeling heavy of heart, let me tell you that there is hope. Maybe right now you're thinking, Pastor, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have messed up in this category, and it is hard to find hope right now. And, and so in conclusion, as we, as we land the plane for this message, I just want to point you to the cross. I want to point all of you to the cross, right? You might be sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, hey, I haven't, I haven't messed up there. Uh, I'm good to go. I want to point you to the cross. You might be sitting here this morning, and you're like, woe is me. I'm undone. Let me point you to the cross. And and first, I'd like to just broaden the scope of this sin to all of us. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and we could by principle say everyone who's looked at a man with lustful intent, or or thought about a man with lustful intent, either gender here, has already committed adultery with her or with him in his heart. And so what that means, brothers and sisters, is that if you're of age, we're all in the same boat here. We all need Jesus. And we have a beautiful, powerful Savior. The only truly pure man who ever lived and the perfect bridegroom who cleanses us. So look to the cross. He died for your sin and his blood is powerful enough to make you clean if you will look to him in faith. And so we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, that if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you say that if you've made us clean, we are clean indeed. So help us to keep looking to Jesus and to walk in victory. Lord, I I pray that you would protect the innocence in this room. Lord, I I pray that you would convict the unconfessed sin in this room. And Lord, I pray that we would all truly look to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord and our hero for healing and for cleansing and for forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for his sacrifice. And I pray in his name. Amen.